here with the new sports order. Tom Corbett, Sterling Pingree, still in the doldrums of July in the sports world. Making it through. We uh, got through the all-star break for baseball. Red Sox are on a positive run. Well, up until a couple hours ago. But still, that's like eight and three in the last 11 or whatever. Yeah, but you almost have to extrapolate that they just lost two out of three to the Oakland A's. Like, that almost counts in terms of momentum. That's like almost double. Okay, but then you also can counterbalance that with the Yankees are in last place in the American League East. Which is fantastic. Coming out of the All-Star break, the sentiment was the Red Sox next nine games, coming out of the break, are against the Cubs, the A's, and the Mets. Red Sox are in fourth place. Is this the time they sort of make a run? Because fortuitously, or not, we're coming upon the Major League Baseball trade deadline on the 31st. So, would the Red Sox be buyers? Which, for most of the season, seems borderline preposterous. But if they were to go 7-2, and two, then you'd go, well, maybe. You know, they're only a couple games out of the wild card. They're very much alive in the hunt to put something together. And I think with a team like this... Almost the illusion of, you know what, they're in a pennant race. They have a shot at the playoffs. They're playing for something. They're playing meaningful baseball in September. That can be good to at least supply a jumping off point for next year's team because you're probably going to have a lot of the same key pieces. Building block. Building blocks. Now, you take two out of three from the Cubs. Okay, pretty good. You take the first game from the Oakland A's with little resistance, 6 nothing. You then get shut out 3 nothing, and then get beat 6-5 in the rubber match today. So, add it up, win 2 out of 3, lose 2 out of 3. They're 3-3 three and three since the end of the All-Star break. And now they have 3 with the Mets. They could sweep the Mets, they could be 6-3, and three, and this is all a moot point. And they'll make the dip-a-toe-in trade, where they're going to maybe add a starting pitcher... But at the same time, this past week, I mean, they're losing games because they're starting two openers, you know, and it's guys like uh, Joe Jakes and uh, Bernardino and and guys who, quite frankly, came out of nowhere, have ERAs north of six as a relief pitcher, and they're going to be your starter. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, okay. You know, so go get a starting pitcher, but is it going to be a, a big move? No. But I think they're going to try to do the, we made a deal to show that we have faith in this ball club. They're going to make one of those moves. Yeah, I don't see a, a big Otani move coming for the Red Sox, which I don't I'm, gonna, I'm so fascinated to see what's going to happen with that. You know, you read the articles of, oh, it's a little bit easier on the Angels because Mike Trout is hurt. So it's going to be easier to kind of trade him and not have the entire fan base want to jump off a bridge. I'm like, I think they're still going to be pretty pissed off about it. 
Yeah, I mean, can can you name anyone on the the 1918 Boston Red Sox that if they were injured, we would have been okay with trading Babe Ruth? No. Exactly. No, I can't say so. You know, Harry Hooper goes down with a groin. We're probably not going. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, you can trade Babe Ruth. We were we we just didn't have it this year. Uh, yeah, you trade a transcendent talent like Otani. Uh, I don't think it matters the circumstance around it. You know, the Boston Red Sox didn't think that they could sign Mookie Betts. Trading him to the Dodgers did not ease my pain at all, especially for eight cents on the dollar. Don't want to bring that up. But, so to be to be at this point, he has to have made it very clear, like, hey, I am not coming back either way. Because well, I would I, think, I think even that, if there's a smidge of a chance, chance, he comes back to the Angels. Even if there's a smidge of a chance, I think if you're Anaheim, you just roll the dice. Maybe I'm Can wrong. Can you afford to? If you're the Angels and you have Otani, it, it, it seems difficult to me because it seems like he's going to go. I don't know. I'm not really judging that on anything. All we know really is that he'd like to play for a winner. That could be the Angels in his mind. We don't know what his parameter is. He wants to be on the West Coast. Though so they're a team on the West Coast, one of somewhat few. So they could have just as good a chance as anybody. You know, people say he's a, a very loyal guy. He's enjoyed his time with the Angels. It seems like he kind of fits the, I don't know, the the lifestyle, the the culture of the Anaheim Angels? Like, would he be a great Dodger? Maybe. Would he be a great Giant? Maybe. Would Seattle fit? I mean, it's it worked for Ichiro and Kaz Sasaki. I mean, he wants to be a West Coast guy. That's really all we know. Maybe he is one that, you know what? He likes being an Angel, and if they can pony up the money, if they can. I mean, I, I heard Pedro Martinez two weeks ago on the Rich Eisen show say, I've talked to him. I've let him know he needs to kind of look out for himself. Essentially what Pedro is saying is you could get $600 million. Find who will give you the most money because that's doing yourself a disservice. If you don't keep your options open, don't just blindly say I'm okay. Staying an angel. I'll, I'll be here forever. It's fine. This is all fine. We'll never go to a playoff series, but I'll get my kicks going to the world baseball classic and, and pitching in big moments there every couple of years. The Dodgers can't have that deep a pocketbook still, right? <laughs> to carve out another think... 600 mil. They're starting Jason Hayward right now. Like It's amazing to watch the Dodgers who every year, and you can go back to the days of Mondesi, Piazza, and Karros, and Nomo, where it's like just every year they won the rookie of the year. Well, it seems now the Dodgers just always have a, a Dustin May, a... You know, the next Clayton Kershaw, a Walker Bueller, a Tony Gonsolin. I mean, like every year they got one of these young 99 mile an hour fireballers who's going to win 20 games. They bring up prospects that win MVPs. But then, like two years in the league, you know, kind of like a new iPhone, they're somewhat obsolete. I mean, we thought Cody Bellinger was going to be like the next, I don't know, Chipper Jones, for lack of a better comparison. And now he's a Cub, and he's a solid player. But, I mean, the guy was an MVP just a couple of years ago. I, I, it's very odd to me what happens. Like, the level of depreciation on Dodger A1 talent is steeper than buying a new car. 
it just the second you drive them out of Chavez Ravine, they become a 270 hitter with 18 homers and injury issues. I, it, it's bizarre. I, I really don't get it. And they produce so much of their own talent. And then they sign the Freddie Freemans and Mookie Betts and all these guys. You go, well, they got to have an absolute dream team. And the West hasn't been as good as we thought. And they, they're still kind of struggling. I, I really don't. I can't place it. You, If you were to look at the production of the Braves and the Dodgers, you would think that the Braves are the ones with the billion-dollar payroll. Yeah. That's what, that's what that looks like. Meanwhile, Padres and Mets are right there at the top of spending and right there at the bottom of baseball. We joke about the Yankees being in last place in the AL East. I think I saw something today that it's the first time since 1990 that they've been in last place in the division this late in the year. But then I look at the standings, and they would be like two games up in the Central, in the AL. Oh yeah, you compare you and compare almost the leading the Central in the, and the NL too. Yo, it, it's it's pretty much the the universe that has been created. You know, it, it's like we talk about the AFC East. I was chatting with someone about it the other day. They're like, "Oh, the Patriots could be a last place team." I was like, "Yeah, they could be a last place team and still get a wild card in the AFC East." You know, we're not. T- we were comparing because of the the destination. We may speak about DeAndre Hopkins, but they're like, well, you know, the the Titans are a better team. I said the Titans might finish second in their division. They might even win their division, but their only competition is the Jacksonville Jaguars. You know, it's the same with the American League East right now. There's five teams that you have to contend with in the AL East, where you know the Blue Jays are a middle of the road team. The Baltimore Orioles are. I mean, don't, don't look now. What are they mathematically tied with the, the Tampa Bay Rays who look like they were going to run away and hide like they were the 84 Tigers or something? It, it's it's really stunning to look at the young talent that these teams have accrued and they've done it through the draft. Now, Law of Averages says the Baltimore Orioles were due just to how many times they were picking at the tops of drafts that after a while, they were going to have to draft some of these superstars that were going to have to come to fruition. And finally, they kind of all are all at once. Just been on the look for that next J.J. Hardy. <laughs> so many. I mean, you know, it seems like the, the Pittsburgh Pirates and, uh, you know, for a while, amazingly enough to think about, it, it was the Houston Astros. You know, we looked at the Astros. Where it was like they were drafting. I remember they drafted Mark Appel, this can't-miss pitching prospect. They took him first overall. I don't believe he ever made the major leagues. It just wasn't anywhere close. And it seemed like every few years they were picking at the top of the draft after losing 110 games, and they were just never getting any closer. And then all of a sudden, all at once, it's Altuve and Springer and Bregman. It's like, okay, you get that momentum going. We've already seen that with a team like the Baltimore Orioles, where it seemed like Toronto was about to do it, and it's just it, it hasn't quite lined up. I think the pitching has just kind of never developed around it. Whereas Houston made one or two moves, brought in Verlander, brought in Cole, bolstered the rotation, had enough relievers to get by, and then just put together, you know, an unbelievable lineup. That could be happening in Baltimore right now. And as a Red Sox fan, that is very scary that the Orioles are becoming what the Orioles are. While the Rays are still the stalwart Rays, while the Blue Jays are this frisky middle of the road team that, could hit 14 home runs in a series, you know, on a given weekend, just blow your doors off. It's, oh, and by the way, the Yankees still exist for whatever they are. I can't Tough wait. 
I, I don't I know. I can't if we're wait for the not, next, but... for this year's rendition of the Aaron Boone song. <laughs> Cashman still has faith kind of, in him. It, it is kind of fun. well. Why? Because the Yankees have had faith in Cashman for a million years. It's it's so interesting. If you want to compare the Yankees to what I would say is probably no offense, their NFL counterpart would be the Dallas Cowboys. And the Yankees don't really have the eccentric owner that they used to have. You know, we, we lost the boss a while ago. I mean, like Aaron Boone would have been fired probably four different times already if George Steinbrenner were still running the Yankees. But now it's this very, I mean, how many times have, has the season ended early for the Yankees and people have wanted Cashman's head on a platter? And the Yankees just continuously bring him back. He's been the general manager for over 20 years at this point. And he, if I'm not mistaken, he wasn't even part of kind of the bringing in of Jeter and Posada and those guys. He came in after you, they were selected, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, so that was that was Gene Michael was the general yep. manager then. Him and Bob Watts are running player personnel for the Yankees. Um, he was a part of the front office. He wasn't the general manager. Gene Michael was. I believe his nickname was Stick. Stick Michael. Um was the uh, was the GM? He was sort of a part of it, but yeah, he was kind of the the tail end there. I can't remember when he took over, but it, it was it may have been after two thousand, but it was, it's somewhere right around there. So still the the core four heyday, but he wasn't necessarily the one that was drafting Jeter in ninety two ninety three. So way. yeah, I mean. And you look at Boone, and now they just want his head on a player. So to go back to the comparison with the Cowboys, you know, people look at Jerry Jones as being this kind of erratic owner. And you know, the things he says and, and does is uh, a little, we'll say, non-traditional for what a lot of NFL owners are, even though I think <laughs> more are a little unhinged than we, we sort of are, are led on to. But he's loyal. Like Jerry Jones typically keeps head coaches four years past our expiration date. And that's now funny enough what the Yankees are, are doing with, if not Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman. Mm. Yeah. He took over as the GM in 98. Been oh, okay. with the Yankees so, since 86. Steinbrenner found him managing a horse track. So the Yankees won the 96 World Series, then they won in 98, 99, 2000, lost in 01 to the Diamondbacks in the World Series, uh, got beat by the Angels in 02 in the first round of the playoffs, and then lost to the Marlins in the World Series in 03, and then obviously the Red Sox in seven games of ALCS in 04. So, yeah, all right, yeah, he's, if not the architect, he was the landlord of the dynastic Yankees. Yeah, the, uh, the architect of the baby bombers. The 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 core four, as I call them, you know, Rivera, uh, Posada, Pettit, and Jeter. Which I, mean, I think Pettit and Pettit and Jeter were drafted like ninety two. Posada a little bit after that. Rivera was drafted like ninety one. So he would have been the organization, but I don't know how much say he probably had in drafting Mariano Rivera. Yeah, this is. Maybe he had more 
more in there in the one A Rod World Series. He had the fingers in more on that one. In 09, yeah. And then. Um, well, and you you think of the number of moves that they made at that time. And um, you know, we talked a little bit about last week. So I'm uh, I'm right now in game seven of the 04 ALCS. Uh, we, we've come this far. We've gotten through some of the incredibly long games. And now we're finally to the point where the Red Sox are just bludgeoning the Yankees. But you look at the amount of moves every year. The Yankees were signing you know, three or four out of the top free agents every single year. And that was the biggest difference, as I kind of think in totality of the Red Sox and Yankees that played in the 03 ALCS and the Red Sox and Yankees that played in the 04 ALCS, both won seven games, both kind of razor-thin margins of between who was the better team. But the biggest difference, as far as I can really tell, is the rotation in 03, you were still led by Clemens, Pettit, Messina, you had the start with David Wells. You still had a lot of the stalwarts. Where in 2004, they kind of redid the rotation completely. Where they gone are Clemens, gone is Pettit, gone is David Wells. In comes Javier Vasquez and Kevin Brown and John Lieber. Which John Lieber had a pretty good run there. Pitched for the Cubs, then goes to the Yankees. Was more than adequate. Messina becomes, you know, and he's a Hall of Famer at this point, but a very good pitcher who I don't know is if you necessarily wanted him as your ace in 2004, but the ones who really spit the bit in that series were Brown and, and Vasquez, especially when you look at game seven. So it was that kind of big cultural shift, but what I, I kind of jumped down this rabbit hole, not only because I'm watching these games, but also to illustrate, God, those Yankee teams, they just made so many swings, just so many giant moves of, Oh, from one year to the next, uh, you know, it's not good enough to have Alfonso Soriano, who is one of the best young infielders in baseball, we now have to trade him for Alex Rodriguez. Yes, we're going to sign Hideki Matsui to a record contract coming over from Japan. Uh, we're going to go get Gary Sheffield. We're going to sign Tom Gordon, who was a closer right before that. We're going to, you know, it was just everyone was a name on every one of those teams. So for, it worked out for a long time. But when it didn't, boy, you, you look dumb throwing money after the Carl Pavanos of the world. <laughs> Let's just hammer the Yankees. Can we just hammer the Yankees for an hour? Uh, well, we're going to talk some more baseball later, and we're going to talk about the Rocket, but not Roger Clemens. But I will a little bit of football news, and it's interesting kind of coming out of the last few days, is kind of as most expected, pretty much none of the franchise tag running backs got long-term contracts. You have Saquon starting to heavily indicate his willingness to skip this season, which didn't work out great for Le'Veon Bell. But who's to say? Don't know what's going to happen with Jacobs. Pollard signed his franchise tender for the Cowboys. And, you know, kind of the debate firing up once again of the kind of in terms of contracts and money, the devaluing of the star running backs with the theory of we can always find a running back. There's plenty of guys. You look at, you know, a lot of the teams who have won the Super Bowl recently have not necessarily had or needed a star running back. But you're seeing these guys, you know, 
Jacobs over 1,600 yards last season. Barkley over 1,300. Unable to get long-term deals. Pollard, he's an interesting one because he's never really truly had the full starter workload. Last year was probably the closest. Coming off a broken leg. Not to be a homer, but I could kind of see a little bit of trepidation in giving that big long-term con, especially when you're still eating <laughs> the Ezekiel Elliott big long-term contract. So I could see some trepidation there. What What do you think happens here? You know, you have the Giants coming off a season where I think everyone would probably admit they probably overshot expectations by a wide margin. Give Daniel Jones a big contract, which, okay. As a Cowboys fan, I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm sure you are. And now, theoretically, they're going to go into the season without their best offensive player, which I think everyone would also say was Saquon Barkley. Same with the Raiders going in without Jacobs, just setting up Jimmy G for success. What what happens here? Well, I think you kind of illustrated it. Uh, really, their, their choices are they either play or they don't. You know, the the best test case for this, the, the litmus test, the canary in the coal mine, if you will, is Austin Eckler. Austin Eckler says he wants to be traded. Austin Eckler has more touchdowns combined, has the most touchdowns combined over the last three years in the NFL, regardless of position. And nobody would trade for Austin Eckler, who's still in his 20s, by the way. Seems like he should be 35 years old, but he's comfortably in his 20s. And no one would step up for him. Yeah, we, we see that the market for Dalvin Cook is even more tentative than it was for 31-year-old DeAndre Hopkins. And Hopkins is, what, four years older than Cook? And there just isn't a market developing. And with him already out there, I think if you're Saquon Barkley, yeah, how good were, was he last year? He was outstanding. Josh Jacobs was outstanding last year. But what team is looking at it going, we should devote this much capital to this position. No one is. No one wants to go in on it. You know, there are cautionary tales all over the league. You know, guys, Zeke Elliott, you you touched on it, where they look at it and go, given that running back, that second contract. The Patriots just did it with Damian Harris. Damian Harris is a very productive player, and he's still a very young player. I think he's 25. And the Patriots put up zero resistance to watching him walk out the door and go to Buffalo, a division rival for... I don't remember what he signed for. It was like $6 million or less. I heard a stat yesterday on um, Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah Bucky Brooks. And I think the stat, it's like 51 or 53 players in the NFL make more than $20 million a season. Most of those are quarterbacks. Yep. And there's a couple of receivers that do. Uh, a couple of edge rushers and then a couple of tackles. It's like five tackles. So five positions make up the top 54 contracts in the National Football League. None of them are wide receivers. The other great example they gave, too, I think Bucky Brooks put this out there, was he was at New Orleans Saints training camp a couple years ago. 
they were looking at Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas just signed that mega deal with the Saints. And this was the time where you know Mark Ingram was an elite running back. They said Mark Ingram is getting paid a fourth of what Michael Thomas is getting, but touches the ball three times as much as Michael Thomas. On a great game, Thomas is only affecting, what, seven plays a game? Whereas on a given drive, Mark Ingram's probably touching the ball four, five, plus you know more direct blocking, blitz pickup, you know things like that. So it's been out of whack for a while. I, I, what we do or, or what happens with Saquon and Josh Jacobs, I think you laid it out. They can either sit out, not play, and wait for free agency a year from now. We saw what they did for Le'Veon Bell. Did not necessarily increase his value. And I think even more teams would be more weary of a guy who missed a full season and then is coming off of that. We know that that clock is ticking down towards 30 and that the value of a running back diminishes greatly at age 30. So they're going to skip a season of their their value of of production. the, The best case is that they go out and have another great season and they get paid in free agency. But the problem with the franchise tag is that it just keeps putting that off. And for these guys with that clock ticking, you know, they can afford to, to lose these key seasons. Yeah. Saquon right now is the same age as Le'Veon Bell was when he skipped the 2018 season. They're both 26. Italy? It's definitely, you know, you look at guy like Odell Beckham Jr. got – if he hits all his incentives and everything is about 16 million this year for the Ravens coming off major knee injury, tried to get back in at the end of last year and no team wanted him after a workout took a while. Ravens do eventually lock him in, but still, like you said, the difference of position, just the allure of, Hey, maybe, Odell Beckham coming off this knee still has something left in the tank. Here's 16 million. What the franchise tag for the running backs this year was what? uh, I want to say around 11. I'll have to look it up. I was going to say it it was 12, but that may be, you know, last year's number for, yeah, wide receiver. It's, I mean, I'm sure it's probably what nine, somewhere between 19 and 22, 22, five, somewhere in there. Um, you look at it, and this is a segue into DeAndre Hopkins. I think that's where the Patriots kind of tapped out or weren't willing to go. I think they were looking at, okay, we're going to sign a 31-year-old receiver. We're going to make it incentive-laden in that if he produces, he'll get paid. If he doesn't produce, he won't get paid because there is the gamble with a 31-year-old receiver. I think it was more so they they were willing to give up the money, but they were giving up the money for the production they wanted. They weren't going to give the money up front. I think Tennessee was willing to give more up front rather than just based off of incentives. Gone, I think, are the days where guys are willing to take, you know, pay for play. Uh, Albert Breer reported yesterday that the holdup with the Saquon Barkley deal is the guaranteed money in year three. Because that becomes the key year when you're 26, 27 years old, that you want the guaranteed money when you hit 30. You right. don't want to hit that and be, you know, be, be out of guaranteed money. That, that's what causes in a lot of these instances. It's not the value of the contract. And I think we, we see these numbers and go, he's getting paid $27 million, but it's not guaranteed. He goes down in training camp. He doesn't see a nickel. 
or he only sees what is guaranteed in the deal. And a lot of these contracts, because they want cap flexibility on the back end, they load it up with guaranteed money at the front. So going back, because this is the, the greatest example of a temper tantrum over a contract situation, was Antonio Brown leaving the Pittsburgh Steelers, going to the Raiders. All of his guaranteed money was up. He had a contract. He's under contract with the Raiders. None of that was guaranteed. He wanted the guaranteed money with the Raiders, and he didn't want to redo the deal to add guaranteed money at that point. And he was a temper tantrum, wants a new contract, wants out of everything. But that was the reason why. Yeah, is that they want that assurance and what it is in the Saquon deal. And it's probably the same thing with the Josh Jacobs is that they want that guarantee at around year three. And some of these teams are going, ah, I don't know how much guaranteed money, you know, in cap space you want to dedicate to a 30 year old starting running back. I know I would like to invest it in Zach Martin to keep him happy, but that's just me. It's not just you, but uh, I mean, maybe specifically in this case, sure. But I bet Tony Pollard wants Zach Martin there too. <laughs> well, and, and so to to go back to the DeAndre Hopkins thing, and not to just always be a you know Patriots apologist, but I always try to kind of figure out like, okay, like what makes sense here? Why why did the Patriots or why did Bill Belichick make the decision that he made in this instance? And not that it's only his, but let's just say that if he's willing to give the same contract that the Tennessee Titans offered Hopkins when he was there for a two-day visit, which is almost unheard of in New England. If they give that offer, he takes it. He's a New England Patriot. I, I think that's a done deal that if he's there for two days and they give him the, the equal money, I think he signs. He, he doesn't even get on the flight. What the Patriots have now is, I think, after this year, right now they have the ninth most cap space in the NFL. Next year, they have the most cap space. They have almost $60 million in cap space in 2024. The following year, again, number one most cap space right now projected for 2025 and also for 2026. So that also means that in cash spending right now in the NFL, the Patriots in 2024 are 32nd in cash spending, 31st in cash spending in 2025, and 32nd in cash spending devoted to contracts in 2026. So what does this mean? Why, why aren't the Patriots spending any money? They have all this cap space. They have all these resources. They're not spending. They're literally not keeping up with the Joneses. And I wrote about this this week. You look at the names that the Patriots are starting to build around because the narrative that the Patriots don't draft well is starting to go out the window. You see guys like Hal Duggar, uh, Josh Uche. These guys are starting to produce, and you want to hold on Michael on Manu uh, at right guard. These guys have started to produce, but they're all coming up in free agency. You know, Kyle Duggar is a free agent after this season. Josh Uche coming off a double-digit sack season in 2022 is a free agent after this season. If they're going to retain any of these guys, they got to have cap space. So I don't think it's so much now that the Patriots aren't spending. I think it's the way they're gearing up. After 2024, you know, Matt Judon becomes a free agent. Uh, Christian Barmore is going to become a free agent. At that same time, you're going to have to decide – what to do with Mac Jones? Do you pick up the fifth-year option on Mac Jones? Do you try to negotiate an extension? I mean, at that point, you may know. Right now, we probably don't. But to put yourself in a position where in 2026, you can give a, a big contract to Mac Jones. If they decide he is their guy, you have to be in the financial space to do that. They certainly will have the contract. They'll certainly have the cap space to do it. But I think in an interesting plot to us, the Patriots have internal free agents that are young and could potentially be a core of this team and they're going to have the money to do it. They're going to, have to be able to actually retain players instead of watching the Joe Toonies, the Shaq Masons, the, the Damien Harris's just walk out of the door. Future planning. 
is almost more important than the uh, the present. And certain teams do it well. You know, you look at what the Eagles do and how they sure. lay things out. And okay, there's there's a lot of forward thinking there. So they can well, sign a Jalen Hurts to a very player friendly, maybe team friendly deal, and still be able to sign, you know, the sixth pick overall and bring in free agents. And it's all kind of set up and it's this kind of constant escalator that revolves around. Well, and you look at the, the what has the constant been for the Philadelphia Eagles for, I mean, the last 10 years is the fact that they not only drafted, developed, but the fact that they retain this offensive line. Jason Kelsey, Lane Johnson, Jordan Malata, I mean, the Landon Dickerson, they've been able to, they've drafted really well. They've drafted overabundance at these positions because they're never caught off balance. Someone goes down and boom, you know, Jordan Mailata becomes a superstar. You know, and a lot of that's coaching, but the fact that, you know, you draft Lane Johnson, I mean, he was what, third overall pick, fourth overall pick, but they retain Lane Johnson. You know, Jason Kelsey is a you know, career Philadelphia Eagle. You know, Landon Dickerson will probably be, you know, a career fellow. They've been able to build that core and keep it in place. Things are a lot easier for Jalen Hurts playing behind that offensive line. I'm not diminishing anything he did, but you're giving other players a better chance to succeed when you can have an elite something, whether it's an elite defensive line or elite offensive line. Uh, it's not always the luxury positions, and and that'll be what I think that's a good point that you make. Talk about the Eagles. But with the Patriots, like people won't the the general public of NFL fans, they want to see the splash of DeAndre Hopkins. It's more fun to imagine Dalvin Cook coming to New England than it is to re-sign Kyle Duggar for five years. Yeah, they want the sizzle, huge sizzle, huge. Sizzle. And that was the point of of the the column that I wrote for this past week was that. You don't win, like we're not winning July. The Patriots have not won July. All the the pundits and and talk show hosts are talking about how Belichick's on the hot seat. And then Hopkins signs elsewhere. The Patriots have lost July. If you listen to the radio long enough, you would think this team won't win four games, and that Belichick's probably getting fired by Halloween. But the season isn't played in July. The season isn't even played in August. Yeah, we're a month and a half away. I think we're like 50 days to kick off right now. The fight, you know, will DeAndre Hopkins help them win football games? He probably would in 2023. In 2023, he probably does make the receiving room better. But it's also one of but, those, does he bring enough where it's worth some of those young guys, the Thorntons, Kevin Bourne, to lose snaps? And not get sure. the experience to see whether they have what it takes to be on that. Does he bring enough to offset the younger guys getting less snaps? Well, it, it, the Red Sox have been a great example of this. Is that you know they, you know, I'm trying to think of, of kind of the direct corollary, but you know they they re-signed Nate Evaldi, who I mean love Nate Evaldi, great pitcher, but they were right up against the luxury tax threshold after they made that signing. And I think to me that that and the Chris Sale extension really hamstrung them in terms of what they could or couldn't do with Mookie Betts. Now that may have never been not to bring Mookie Betts in every episode, but they may have never been in, in their plans, but there is a cause and effect. You signed DeAndre Hopkins and most people look at it and go, Oh, it's only $16 million. But if you end up in a situation where 
your number that you assign to say Mike on Wenu, and you say, well, we could pay Mike on Wenu, you know, 12 and a half million. And then the market goes up to, well, we're going to pay him 14 and a half. <sighs> you know, th- these numbers matter. I guess unless you're the New Orleans Saints, then the cap has never mattered anyway. But for most teams in the NFL who are paying attention, the, the cap matters. And yeah, it, it, even a, a two-year deal, and that's what everyone has said. Well, it was only two years. Two years with the names that we just mentioned. I mean, you're talking Matt Judon in two years. Yeah. You're talking Christian Barmore in two years. Uh, th- th- there's a lot of names that are going to come up where it seems like you just drafted them. These things come up quick. Rookie deals don't last forever. That might be a fun gimmick for the show. Let's just see how many things we could tie to Mookie Betts. Like, oh, <laughs> Djokovic lost the Wimbledon this week. Well, if you look back at what Mookie Betts did. It's like with the Dodgers lost to, oh, I'm trying to think it would be, they lost to the Braves. I don't know. We, we, we yes. could probably do it. It's like seven degrees of separation. Uh, good listen, if you guys want. Uh, Edelman was on the New Heights podcast this mm. week. And it was, Edelman's always entertaining and, you know, he puts stuff out there. He's very entertaining. He's very entertaining. A lot of tongue in cheek stuff, but like he knows what he's doing. Like he knows what he's, he knows what he's putting out there. He knows how he's going to be interpreted. Yeah. I think there's one moment because they, uh, one of their sponsors is like a organic energy drink. I forget what it is. And he's like, oh, Edelman, you like that? He's like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's like, got a nice, easy taste to it. I also just put in a lipper, so I don't know which. <laughs> but no, that's a, that's a good listen if someone's looking for, for something this week. I'll have to check it out. I always find Edelman uh, entertaining. He's, he's pretty relaxed and take himself too seriously. But, I mean, not knowledgeable guy. I mean, you get why, you get why he was successful just hearing him talk. Yeah, and I love how you know talking about because people always ask him about like Welker, and he, he's just like, yeah, you know, Wes was just kind of like the asshole older brother. <laughs> he yeah, wasn't like, looking you, to divulge like information. They, yeah, I mean that that can't be, and I think that's an illustration of the NFL in general is like. You know, Welker isn't going to come in and be like, oh, yeah, like, uh, here, Rook, here, l- l- let me show you how to do this because he doesn't want to lose his spot in New England. And I mean, that ended up happening anyway. But, but he, he kind of subtly throws a shot because a little while after that, he's like, yeah, you know, when I got older, I was very secure in my role. So if I could help <laughs> the younger guys with anything, I did that. Mm. <laughs> Shots. <laughs> Well, that's it. Welker is one of those guys who's never really kind of popped up with like the, oh, the Patriot guys and showing up and hanging out with Brady or anything like that. You know, uh, I mean, there, there was a couple of like times Ray Allen the- with the Celtics after he had kind of left and wasn't to, attached. To a point, I mean, Welker's been in the, uh, he's been with the Kentucky Derby you know, crew that Brady's taken out there with, with Gronk and, you know, Castle and, and Edelman and those guys. He's rolled with them a couple of times, but I think it's tough because he's been a coach, you know, pretty True. much the whole time. I mean, he's what, San Francisco? Or he's in Miami now, but he's with San Francisco. You know, he's with Denver. He's kind of been all over the place as a receivers coach. So it's difficult. It was the same with like Vrabel 
where it's like, oh, it'd be cool to bring Mike Vrabel back into the fold, you know, for something. And it's like, well, yeah, but he's linebackers coach, D's D coordinator with Houston, and he's head coach with the Titans. Very cool, though, that Mike Vrabel actually going to the Patriots Hall of Fame this year because he kept getting on the ballot. And it's a fan vote, but the fans have actually done a pretty good job. The Patriots induct one person into the team Hall of Fame each year. And Vrabel would be on the list. And I'm like, I mean, even if you vote for Mike Vrabel, is he really like, how are they going to do this? Like he's coaching every week. So they're actually doing usually the ceremonies in August during training camp. They do a big thing at the Patriots hall of fame. Uh, but this year they're doing, I think it's like October 21st. So I don't know if that's like the Tennessee bye week or, or what it is, or if they play on a Thursday or something, but uh, they are able to do it. So good for, good for rape. So that, that's been one that, as you talk about guys who like aren't in the fold, like that's one where it's like, I want like fences mended. You know, I, I want to see, you know, I, it, it, it's tough to see Mike Vrabel. As, I'd love to see him as a head coach, but tough to see him in at least in the AFC, but certainly with Tennessee. All right, let's get into our movie for the week as we continue to dive into the cinema through the downtime of the summer where there's not many sporting events taking place. And normally we do a movie that Sterling has not seen. But we've started dabbling kind of in some of our childhood favorite sports movies that we've both seen numerous times. We did Little Giants. This week, Rookie of the Year was what we decided to go with. And this one was a classic. It kind of came in that flurry. There was a lot of of different kind of baseball movies around that time. There was kind of a boom, if you will. This was 1993. Starred Thomas Ian Nicholas, who would go on to American Pie fame. I would believe he would be probably best known for. Quick, just a quick rundown. Got this kid. Loves baseball. By the beginning of the movie, would imply he is not good at baseball. He's not good. Windermere has horrible allergies, is sneezing his full head off in right field. And because the the other kid was starting Hebrew school, the the coach went with the asthmatic Windermere over Henry Rowan Gardner, which, by the way, these names, bravo. Great name. Windermere. I want to know, and I hope that you actually know this, like where did Rowan Gardner come from? Like that has to be like some sort of combo name or like the director, or producer, or writer, like grew up with a Rowan Gartner. I, I don't know. It, it does in some weird way add to him wearing the really small jersey and Rowan starts at like his waist and Gartner ends at the other side of his waist. Just, just bravo. Yeah. Uh, also, for whatever reason, Rowan Gartner is the only kid on the team that doesn't have baseball pants. He's wearing <laughs> jeans. Always like, it seems like it's a pretty serious little league team by the looks of it. And for whatever reason, he's in blue jeans, everyone else full uniform, full baseball pants. So, I mean, thinking back to little league, usually it was the jersey. It wasn't the pants. Like, he, everyone could get the pants on, but usually there was like – there was always one kid that you either ran out of jerseys or you took an extra kid on the team. So there's always one kid that like, where's the pen? 
he wore like it was a t-shirt with a number on it it was just like a little bit off is a little more generic it was just kind of like what they could come up with the pants is different once in a while it was like okay we can't get the same gray pants that everyone else has in that size so we have to get like this dark gray pair but it's still but, baseball uh, pants <laughs> sure oh 100 percent. but who knows they might have just ran out and henry at that point did not uh, apparently earn pants but fast forward and <laughs> Not to not to spoil anything from the movie from 1993. You go to the last scene of the movie, where he's back playing little league again as a World Series champion, still in blue jeans, while everyone else is in full baseball uniform. Yet also has a World Series ring and is wearing it. World Series ring had endorsement deals with Pepsi. Reebok. Had a major league career for one season. Still cannot afford baseball pants? Yeah. Well, I mean, if he'd been sold to the Yankees and he got that, tw- if he got that $25 million they're talking about, um, yeah, you, you would think that he'd have some. Well, we don't know how girl. much uh, mom's boyfriend at the time stole from him. Has he just somehow anointed himself his manager? <laughs> and so- yeah, J- Jack Bradfield, uh, rough character, never liked him. And then the only other thing I really, I mean, I know he's been in a lot of stuff. You kind of see him a lot. The only other thing I think of him in uh, is the neighbor on The Sopranos when they buy the like beach house or the, the lake house. And, and Tony ends up trying to get him to to move by having a couple of guys. I think it was like Pauly Jr. go out with the biggest speakers you've ever seen and blasting Dean Martin live. For just hours on end. On the Stugats. So, fast forward a little. So, Henry slips on a baseball while at school, trying to impress Julie the Cat Gaffney. Yep, who wouldn't? Lands on his shoulder, gets full arm-in-the-air cast for like Which, six okay. weeks couple well no it was like four months or yeah whatever says, yeah go until august like, yeah he's like how long he's like august he's like that's like four months which you know um couple things were you in i mean because he was what like a what 11, 11 i think 11 12 something like that i'm trying to remember what uh Berkman says i'm gonna mold you one of the greatest 12 year olds ever played i think he's 12 something like that okay. yeah which also, by the way, would be his last year of Little League because he wouldn't be able to play when he's 13, so that doesn't really hold up either. Um, not to get too nitpicky, we are. Apparently, you, you see all some things that were, were glaring omissions, but let us let me throw this out there. Uh, he's 12 years old, so he's you know elementary school. Were you allowed baseball bats and like, hard baseballs on the playground like at your elementary school? Probably would have, but that wasn't like there was never any like pickup baseball games during recess. Oh, because we straight up were not allowed. We we could not have bats. Like I don't I don't think, and no one even tried. I don't even think we could have like wiffle ball. Mm. Like we couldn't have a, a bat of any kind, and I don't think we were allowed a hard baseball. Like you could mm. have nerf anything. You could play football, whatever. We were a big um, kickball but, elementary school. 
Yeah, we were big kickball and touch football. Those were like our, our two big ones. But it was because, and I always wanted, I was like, what, you know, once I saw the Sandlot, I was like, man, how great would it be? Just every recess, we just take fungos for 45. I was the only one that thought fungos seemed like a lot of fun, uh, especially with another third grader hitting them. But anyway, um, like we weren't allowed, I don't think we, we were allowed to have a hard baseball. I think if we were to play catch, it would have maybe been a tennis ball. And I think even that would have like drawn. Mm. Drawn some uh, some some glares in Kingfield Elementary School. So he slips, falls, breaks his shoulder. There's some ligament damage. He's in this cast, which just a wild cast, by the way. Yeah. the the arm raised cast. That is, what are you doing with that? I, a lot of waving. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, hi, Harry. Had nerdy, bye, Harry. But, like, maybe that's why the tendons fused a little tightly. Maybe that's why they healed incorrectly, Doc. Yeah, so his tendons heal a little tight, gives him this slingshot arm. He throws a rope. He goes to the Cubs game after he gets his cast off as a cast off present from his mom, catches a home run. From the visitors, of course, because the Cubs are terrible. Everyone's yelling, throw it back. And he throws a rope from the outfield stands to home plate. Just frozen rope all the way to home plate. Which John Candy estimates, who is the uncredited announcer for this movie, he estimates is like 435 feet. Yep. Which is probably pretty accurate from the middle of the bleachers. 100 mile an hour rope from, you know, one and a half football fields away. The uh, nephew of the owner of the Cubs (laughs) tracks him down. They sign him. Next thing you know, Henry Rowan Gardner is playing as a 12 year old for the Mets. With the untouchable 101-mile-an-hour fastball. Peaking, I think it peaked at 105 once. Yeah, 105 or 103, hit one. and yeah. Which I, I tried to do a little research this week. I was looking up, oh, average fastball for the 1992 MLB season. And I couldn't find a whole lot. But... Well, I mean, like, what 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 is the fastest ever? Is like what Raldus Chapman's like a hundred and five point three or something, or yeah. it's somewhere around there. So, one hundred and five would be the fastest. But I get in this case that if you're going to believe that this kid can make the major leagues, he's got to be throwing yeah harder than anyone. He's got to be throwing harder than Nolan Ryan. And I will say, I feel like not a good look for the Cubs catcher who is falling over backwards from catching that 101-mile-an-hour fastball. Well, he's used to Chet Stedman, who apparently is the only other pitcher on the roster. But uh, yeah, so, so, Tom, what, what, what are your nitpicks on this movie? I'm not, I'm not seeing it. I mean, okay, so let's start out. Premise, you've, got, you, you've got to buy into Let's buy start into out here this. with, so we know he joins the team in August, end of August, it seems like. 
Well, let's even give them the beginning of August because they, they sure. say they're going to, you know, because the doctor says I want to see him again in three weeks. So let's just even give them sure. for the sake of it. We'll say it's August 1. Two months left in the season. Henry joins. They win two games in a row. Longest winning streak of the season. Longest winning streak of the season. John Candy mentions, along with before Henry gets there, they're lucky if they got 300 people in the stands. The like auditor is telling the nephew, unless we sell out every single game the rest of the season, you are going to be forced to sell this team. It is that bad. He uses the term forfeit the franchise. Yes. Now, that just may be a, a more artful way of saying you won't be able to afford the team but it really makes it sound like Major League Baseball will take this team away from you. Like, you will lose this team before you even take it over if we don't sell out every game. Which I so don't think that's true. It's implied. But, okay. It's going real bad for the Cubbies. <laughs> Things are bad. Henry joins. They win two games. Longest winning streak of the season. They won two in a row. Next game, they go on a little road trip. And it's mentioned... They are now within three games of the Mets for the division. So in one week, they have somehow never had more than a two-game winning streak, are about to lose the franchise. They are now only three back with about 12 games to go, I think they said, could, of the could Mets. Could be a bad season. Could, could be a bad year in the, uh, in the East. Okay. I mean, the Mets didn't look like a runaway. You know, just, yeah, it, it's it's a bit quick to see how fast suddenly they become a, a relevant team. But um, they also don't have any – we saw it's like, all right, Little Giants, you know why they kind of suddenly got good. Like the ragtag bunch that they, they got from the rocking horse in front of the Kmart and the kids sitting on the front steps. Like, yeah, you add uh, Junior Floyd to it and you add some pieces. Okay, you, you're good. Mighty Duck, same thing. Like, yeah, they have Charlie. They have a couple other kids that are, are fine. Add some figure skaters. Fulton, well, but then they add Fulton Reed and um, Cake Eater. You know, yep. like, banks. They, 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 yeah, they add Banks. So they add, like, the two best players in the town. Yeah, they became really good. It makes sense that they got, got good. Um, like, do we see a single Cubs at bat in this game? Like, there's no offense from the Cubs. Like, we have no idea. Like, just the one, the, first the one offense we see, or offensive exchange, is in the final game. Well, no, when they're on the road. Oh, yeah, at LA, and Henry the, walks. Yeah, yeah. Suarez and yeah, I think we see a run in the last game, which another nitpick. Last game, Stedman throws out his arm, and the manager says, "Hey." You gave me six great innings. We're saving you for the playoffs. He's like, no, I'm done. Give me the rest of the year before you take my job. But he gives me six great innings. Henry comes out, like strikes out the side. And next thing, it comes back, and it's like, three more outs. That's all we need. We missed an inning somewhere. I mean, there was like, they did that sort of montage Like, there was a little, mo- like, I-, I can buy that they sort of combined the seventh and eighth there. The big one to me is 
from the final game, which, oh, by the way, I just remember there was like a base hit that scored two runs that we saw. So, like, the Cubs, not an offensive dynamo, I guess is the overall point there. Um, Stedman in the sixth is grunting and grabbing his shoulder after every pitch, and he's starting to get knocked around. Sal Martinella, the manager, who one of the all-time worst managers, even in movie, likable, very likable, seemed like a good guy, old-timey baseball man, felt very gruff. Would not learn Rowan Gardner's last name. Refused to, which I love. Hasn't deserved it yet. Hadn't been around long enough. He gets it one time, but then he gets it wrong again later. Um, Stedman's clutching his shoulder after every pitch. His arm is like literally dangling from its socket. And he yells from the dugout, I'm going to take you out. Which, of course, we get the, the emotional Chet Stedman, one more. Give me one more. And he agrees. Now, like, Stedman has been grabbing his shoulder after every pitch all season long. All year. Not one trainer goes to see him. Even after he gets the out on, by the way, the wildest broken bat you've ever seen. Like, the barrel was in, like, six pieces, all perfectly aligned. Very cool looking. But after he gets the final out, Stedman goes to the dugout. Not one trainer, doctor, anybody's checking on that shoulder. (laughs) He has 100% tore his rotator cuff off. Nobody's looking at him. Well, the Cubs were in some financial perils, clearly, about a month ago. Perhaps they weren't springing for a trainer. It was probably Brickman. He was locked in that cage. Which, another nitpick, not one person over a nine-inning game, not one person went down to the to the locker room at any point. No one had to Martinella. pee. No one had to go grab an extra glove. Nothing. No, Martinella probably had a rule about it or something. But they were just too into the game. They were just too into the game. No one was eating fried chicken and playing video games. Surprisingly not. Surprisingly, but the successful baseball team. Um, here, here's a nitpick I have. This has driven me nuts my entire life of, of watching the movie. And, and I've seen, I'll admit, I've seen this movie as many times as I've seen any movie there is. I've seen Rookie of the Year a zillion times. I saw it in theaters in 1993. It didn't make sense to me then. It doesn't make sense to me now. I've done more research. It is incorrect. When John Candy says before that final game, like this one is for the whole Magilla, for the whole shooting match, for the whole ball of wax. This is what it's all about. The division championship. The loser goes home a loser. The winner goes on to the World Series. Not quite. Yeah. So even in 19, so we'll say 1992, 1993, it changed after the strike where they added the wild card and they expanded the divisions to three divisions. So there's the East, the Central, and the West. 1993, because I'm going by 93, it's when it came out, so I'm going 93 rules here, Um, but it would have been the same for 1992. You only had two divisions. You had the West and you had the East. Looked it up, Cubs, because I mean, like the Atlanta Braves were in the NL West. It just never made sense. They were always battling the Giants at that time. You had the Cubs and the Mets were in the East. So if they're battling for the division and they won the division, so say the Cubs win this game, they win the division. They then go to the NLCS. They're playing a playoff series, which I believe was best of seven at that point. It was best of five originally in the 70s and early 80s, but had been moved to seven games. They would have played the winner of the West. So 
the winner of this game is not going to the World Series. Yeah, even when when Stedman comes out, he says, "I'm saving you for the playoffs." Right. Yeah. So just just a little thing that has always bothered me about that. I'm like, they're, they're not. I mean, yes, it is different. Yes, the wild card, you know, changed everything. The three divisions changed everything. But yeah, they they weren't going automatically to the World Series. And also, I would, like we said, had never won two games in a row that entire season. They go into the playoffs without Rowan Gardner and without Chet Stedman. So they're two best pitchers, and they win the World Series. Yeah, I wrote that down as well because we only see we see I think that one other guy who pitches like opening day for the Cubs who gives up who by the way gives up a home run to the first batter he faces from the San Francisco Giants, uh, and I think he pitched like one other game somewhere down the stretch where Henry Henry comes in and he replaces like this one other pitcher that they have, but yeah, there's no there's really no discernible talent on this Cubs team outside of Stedman who the new owner is set to release now. He's doing us a favor to Jack Bradfield because Chad is getting a little chummy with Mary Rowan Gardner. Um, but they're going to release him. Now, Sal Martinell thinks he's the next manager automatically, even though apparently Sal's about to take his team to the World Series. I don't know. It, it, it is tough. A guy who is, I mean, Stedman gets shelled every time he's out there. Yeah, he is. Like, until, until he leads the Mets 2-1, to one, his ERA has to be seven. And he had what we'll just say is implied major shoulder surgery to which he admittedly says he has complete fear to really heat up the arm. So he's just lobbing him in there. He has pretty much said, I have zero faith in what's going to happen if I try to throw hard. But I, but I do want to say this because I noticed this inconsistency or not inconsistency, but Stedman is getting labeled a bum in the first game that Rowan Gartner pitches in, where he what gives up a home run and then he throws a wild pitch. Yeah, and, Stedman know, comes out. Up. Well, they, they they throw the guy out at third, so he somehow gets a save, gets the win. He gets one out, like they get the one out at third base, and that ends the ball game. He gets a save. So that means Chet Stedman threw eight and two thirds, right? And he's being catcalled by everyone. The owner, the owner. Everyone else is like, "You're a bum, Stedman." Even the manager has vitriol for him. Like, I'm going to take you out. You know, it's like he just went eight and two thirds and got the win. Like 1993 is drastically different than 2023. If a guy went eight and two thirds innings, he'd probably have a statue in front of the stadium. Instead, like, ah, you're a bum, you 40-year-old reclamation project that almost went complete game win. Uh, so this might be a little longer episode. I don't care because I want to talk, talk. Where does Gary Busey fall on the actor, believable pitcher rankings? With the assumption, I feel like I have Kevin Costner at the top just for love of the game which if you want to if you go back to uh the bill simmons podcast and you search kevin costner he has a great podcast with him from a few years ago 
where he talked about for love of the game, where literally he's like, they had me pitching like 150 plus pitches every day. And he's throwing like 80. He he was like a uh, you know rubber arm veteran pitcher by that point. They really and like they had today. nobody on the movie. Like, eh, maybe we should talk to someone maybe, if Costner can keep doing this. And he met talks about how like one of the Yankees trainers started working with him and like pretty much says they just started juicing me to try to get it through. And he tells a great story because right at the end, the last game from for love of the game, they nope. did like a full nine inning simulated game where they shot the whole thing in sequence. And he knew like, Oh God, I'm going to throw so much. <laughs> and it was the last one. And he went in and told trainers like whatever you got blue pill, red pill, neon green pill. I need it. And they gave him something. And he said, the trainer told him like after he's like, Hey, you're going to growl at some people today. <laughs> and he was so juiced up. I'm sure. For that for that last shoot of the full day, day into night, full game pitching. And he was, and he said, yeah. He was, he was going to growl at some people. But I have Costner probably at the top. Charlie Sheen, number two. Well, I believe Charlie Sheen played some baseball too earlier and was a decent. Yeah, and, Co- and Costner did too. Costner played some level of of baseball as well. Those those are the the first two that come to mind. I probably give it, it's hard. Rick, Rick Vaughn's a great one. I, I love Billy Chapel. I mean, for love of the game is just such a such a good movie. Um, something about Costner just looks like that veteran picture they tell the story so well uh just i don't know every, everything around it um yeah I, I think i give him the nod and maybe it's just because he'd already done two baseball movies you know he does uh feel the dreams and he does bolt durham so I, I don't know i'd probably give him a little bit of the nod but yes uh v- very good where do you go after those first two well i think we established and we talked about it this week the bottom of the rankings the absolute bottom is from Dazed and Confused. So bad. It's so bad. Who they didn't and have. And should be on the list because like his whole thing is like he's not a pitcher. He's an eighth grader. But like, yeah, he, and I think I've heard this somewhere, like he had never thrown a baseball in his life. Yeah, he lied. He had never done it. They had said, oh, he has to pitch. And he's, oh, yeah, I've, I played baseball. Then he got there and. He was completely uncoordinated. There's a video, I th- you might be able to find it on YouTube, from one of like the special edition DVDs where it shows him and the director, Leonard Linklater, having a catch. Oh, and it's so brutal. He can't even catch the ball. Oh, it's bad. It's, it's, like, it's like for the, that movie, like of- you have to see him catch or pitch because you're to believe, like, oh, in four years, he's going to be the guy running the school. He's going to be that guy and just so bad above him is probably Freddie Prince jr. And summer catch a lot of camera Mm. tricks there. A lot of cutaways as he starts the motion, they cut away and you just see the back of the pitcher pitching because Freddie Prince couldn't throw. Sure. 
I would say Gary Busey's right around that bottom. <laughs> it was not real believable. He was in kind of Bartolo Cologne shape for this movie. He was he was okay. He wasn't that bad. He wasn't Bartolo Cologne. Well, not um, not end of career Bartolo, but I think the argument is is Busey or Robbins. Like which is worse? Chet Stedman or Ebby Calvin Nuke Lelouch in Bull Durham. Like, Ebby Calvin, talk about, like, they, they could only use so many camera tricks. They had to make it, like, they gave him the over-the-top, like, 70s big leg kick, over-exaggerated, like, arms over the head motion. But, yeah, his was pretty rough. Busey, there's really no wind-up. Everything is pretty much from the stretch. There's really, yeah, there, there's not a lot of motion. What I'll give Busey credit for is Busey looked like, I mean, at this period of time, that late 80s, early 90s, like that, he looked like a veteran pitcher. And a lot of it was just mustache and the blonde hair on his head. Just look good in a hat. Like he, he looked like any one of like the Greg Harris's that pitched for the Red Sox around this time. So in terms of like looking like a pitcher, I might give Stedman like a little bit of the edge there, but buying that he was like this big time power pitcher. Okay. That's where I sort of like draw the line. Like he could be the, the journeyman rotation guy, but I'm not buying that, you know, he was Nolan Ryan 10 years I prior. Mean, when you call him the rocket, you're clearly <laughs> saying, Hey, he's this movie's Roger Clements. Right, well, and that's the funny part of it is that they're like, wait, uh, so Roger Clemens, who you know, by 1993 is won an MVP. He's won, I think, three Cy Youngs by that time, and we're supposed to believe, you know, he's built like a horse, yet we're going to believe that Chet Stedman is in that same phylum? Okay, that's that. That's a stretch, you know, to, to that level. Do I buy him as a pitcher? Sure. Better, mo- you know, rotation, like... I can never watch Tim Robbins and go, oh, yeah, I'm sure he played some some semi-pro ball. But they're all above Wiley Wiggins as Mitch Kramer. Oh, yeah, he's he's absolutely the worst. I can't believe they, they didn't switch and be like, oh, yeah, uh, he's he's on the diving team. I don't know. They had to like, change it up to something. Let, wait. Oh, I just thought of this. I, I don't know if this can... I feel like it must. Um, this may be another era. I may have to like go look at this. I never really put this together before. So the montage where Rowan Gartner's found his stride. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And he strikes out three big leaguers in a row. The I, only I three professional players to cameo in the movie. Yeah. One of which fine. being Pittsburgh Barry Bonds. Yes. So here's, here's the, my question. He strikes out Pittsburgh Barry Bonds was the last one because he gives that like little look back at the mound, which by the way, can you imagine pitching to Barry Bonds anytime in his career? And I mean, pitching an idea to Barry Bonds that, Oh, you're going to be in a movie, but you're going to be struck out by a 12 year old. He's going to literally just blow you away. And Barry going, yeah, no, that sounds good. Like it, it seems like a stretch, even in 1992, the other Pedro Guerrero of the St. Louis Cardinals, he was a name. He was bigger in the eighties, kind of a big time prospect with the Dodgers, but Okay, Pedro Guerrero, 1992-1993, sort of buy it in the National League. And in my my head pictures right now, I cannot picture it. The other one I do know is Bobby Bonilla. Yep. 
was Bobby Bonilla in a Mets uniform? I don't remember. I know that those because were Bobby the Bonilla three. Bobby was a pirate, and I believe went to the Mets. He signed there in 92. So in my head, Bobby Bonilla should have been a Met as the Cubs were playing the Mets. Where is Bobby Bonilla? Is he hitting in front of Hado? Unclear. I'm going to have to look this up. This is going to drive me nuts if because I can't believe I haven't ever thought of this before. Whether or not Bobby Bonilla was in a Mets uniform, I feel like he. They, why would they use two pirates and then a cardinal in the middle? That to me that makes no sense because it definitely goes Bonilla Guerrero Bonds. Hmm. I'm very shook right now. Shows that I feel like this movie is will forever be kind of compared to Little Big League. Those are the two that kind of go hand in hand. Similar, you have the the kid pitching in Major League Baseball and the kid inheriting the Minnesota Twins and naming himself the manager of the Twins. But far more Major League appearances in Little Big League. Like, baseball was more in on that one. It's like, you're getting Randy Johnson... Ken Griffey Jr. And remember, they made Randy Johnson look like the Undertaker in his heyday, like scaring children. He was just massive. He had the long hair still, never smiling. Well, that that's what makes him, and that's why I think Little Big League has always been a more, for, for a slightly older audience. Like, yeah, a kid is managing, but it's like, you look at every every big league team that the Twins play in this movie, and there's even big leaguers on the Twins, like Leon Bull Durham. It was the first baseman. Kevin Elster plays an infielder. Like they found guys who had played some baseball and could swing a bat, could field a little bit. But like even the little stuff, like Mickey Tettleton, the the longtime A's and, and Tigers and Rangers catcher, you know, catches the pop up, flips it to the kid. You know, says like, "Welcome to the big leagues, kid." You know, Pudge Rodriguez is in there. He just like steps out from home plate and announces how many outs. That's like his whole, you know, Palmero has a reaction when, when the kid gets tossed from a game. Like every team they played, like they were big league players. I mean, except for really like they go to Fenway Park and, you know, they don't really show any, any Red Sox in it because they really don't show much of what's happening on the field. But um, yeah, that definitely seems like one where Major League Baseball was sort of like more behind it in a way, but also where it wasn't the kind of physical comedy of a 12-year-old throwing 100 miles an hour. It was more kind of philosophical, where it's like, yes, this 14-year-old kid who, again, was a bad Little League player, something about being a bad Little League player in the 90s, you could still make the majors, which is the lesson of all this, uh, becomes the owner and manager of the Minnesota Twins. So a little more, uh, we'll say, sophisticated, if you will. A little more subtle. Just give it a look. For Little Big League... Uh, baseball personalities involved. Ken Griffey Jr., Lou Pinella, Mickey Tettleton, yep. Pudge Rodriguez, Sandy Alomar, Eric Anthony, Carlos Baerga, Alex yep. Fernandez, Randy Johnson, Wally Joyner, Dave Magadan, Lenny Webster, yep. Paul O'Neill, Rafael Palmero, Dean Palmer, Tim Raines, and Chris Berman. Chris Berman, absolutely. Um, by the way, I just looked it up, and in Rookie of the Year, Bobby Bonilla is in a Mets uniform. So we're just glossing over that. Yes, he struck up Bobby Bonilla, 
but he is not on the, that Met team that uh, loses the division. Just just throwing that out there. Just a little kind of continuity. Like, yeah, huge game. We're not going to mention Bobby Bonilla's on the team, even though we've now, like, broken down that wall in, in this movie. Good to know. Uh, um, want to throw this one out there. Uh, th- this is a little one. We don't. I don't want to go too far into it, but um, so he starts throwing a hundred because the tendons healed a little tight. When he falls again in the ninth inning, it loosens him. Like, well, and that was, that was my question because like it makes like this breaking sound again, like it made the first time, and you're like, oh my god, did he break his arm? And he's like, nope, didn't break, but now my tendons aren't tight anymore so did he like rip the te- how did he loosen the tendons by falling on it again that just something i'm not totally buying also again criticizing the manager you now have a 12 year old that no longer has this gift and he intentionally walks in a one-run game in the ninth inning to go to the playoffs against your wishes and you just leave him out there just no idea. Like he and Stedman have no idea what's going on when he gets the out and then tries to intentionally walk the next batter. They have no clue what's happening, but guess what? We don't have a bullpen. Physically, there's no one out there. We're not bringing anyone else in. We're just going to allow this to happen. We're going to let him pitch to Hito. <laughs> We're going to allow him. Like in this day and age, they won't let the you know go ahead run come to the plate. You know they wouldn't issue an intentional pass. It said like no no. It's fine. If he just wants to start intentionally walking guys in front of the, you know, their big home run hitter, not name Bobby Bonilla. Yeah, if you are, uh, how quickly released if you are that Mets player who, after the hidden ball trick, gets peer pressured by a 12-year-old into trying to steal second base as he tosses the ball in the air. <laughs> And you get tricked and you make that out. Like, do you get time to change in the locker room before you're cut? I'm going to go with no. But I think at this point, like, Jeff Torborg was the manager of the Mets. Um, so, coincidentally, one of, one of my favorite books is called The Worst Team Money Could Buy. And it's about the 1992 New York Mets, which famously was a team where they had suddenly just spent a lot of money to try to, like, buy a winner in 92. So they, they signed Bobby Bonilla to a ridiculous contract. They signed Eddie Mur- Murray to a ridiculous contract. They signed Vince Coleman to just insane money. And there's one, I'm trying to think there's another name in there. They end up trading David Cohn because of all of this. Um, but long story short, they don't win many baseball games in 1992. They're still sort of a disaster. Um, so it, it's kind of funny to watch this and just think about like, oh, yes, the worst team money could buy was the 92 Mets. And in this movie, there they are, but yeah, not making a lot of uh, great decisions. And after the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, first one since 1908, Nicholas uh, tweeted the final shot of the movie of Henry showing his Cubs World Series ring. And Daniel Stern, I believe, reprised his role as Brickma following the win. I think I think they even did. Yeah, they may have even done a. Uh, I can't remember one of the opens for one of the World Series games. Might have been Phil Berkman. Which, by the way, great segue. Just one of the great characters. I mean, we we, we have we were a huge Daniel Stern podcast. But how great a character is Phil Berkman? 
I mean, just like it's over the top. It's it's kind of a bit much, but he's so good. It's so, like he is the wrestler who uh, I, I love. Eric Bischoff once described Diamond Dallas Page when Page first kind of came to WCW in the early '90s, where he's got the curly dyed blonde hair. He's got sunglasses. He's got a toothpick. He's chewing bubble gum. He's got a loud vest on. He's got like he had he had a cigar in his mouth. He had every gimmick known to man all at once. That's Phil Brickma. He's got lamb chop sideburns. He's got horn rim glasses. He's got a crew cut. He's got a wild speaking voice. He's choking on seeds. He's kind of an, he had every gimmick known to man, and I'm here for it. Yeah. God, I am ready for the Daniel Stern retrospective. That may be that may be an episode, one hundred percent. That 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 may be one of our that may be our finale as we just do the the great moments of Daniel Stern. And we, I we, we I watched the, this movie no. the other day as we were getting ready to do this podcast. I'm like, huh? I wonder if Daniel Stern's on Instagram. <laughs> he is, and I think his <laughs> son is running for like a California political seat or something somewhere and he's doing bits and it was just hilarious hey son i got some taglines for you and it's just good stuff and i'm like brought me back to a sweet spot i'm like oh god you can watch you know the meg on eight different streaming services but you can't find bushwhacked anywhere (laughs) That, that that is one we watched uh, many many times in college. There was we watched more Daniel Stern movies than any college dorm room ever has. Home Alone one and two, Rookie of the Year, Bushwhacked, Celtic Pride. I mean, I was I mean, I love the Wonder Years too. I mean, he's narrator in that, but uh, I'm trying to think, there, there, there's got to be more in that, that that same genus. But those are the top that that just spring to mind that we watched a ton of. Though I will say, I think we're probably more of an anomaly on the on the college campuses cranking out Daniel Stern shows oh, we are sure. we were not the uh, necessarily the party animals. No, no, we had our fun, but no, that's that's for sure. We uh, all right. We we got to throw this out as we talk about the great characters of this movie before we wrap up. Uh, John Candy, like th- there's a lot of great casting in this. There's a lot of like that guys in this yeah. movie. Like, and a know, lot of, but- and then during that time, not to cut you off, there's a lot of bad, like Bob Euchre impersonations yeah. in all of yeah. these baseball movies. And Candy is a- doing a little bit of the Euchre, but he's John Candy. But, but he was doing he was doing it his own self. Like he was a different character. He wasn't just being the, you know, Euchre had it down where it's the one liner after one liner knows what he's talking about. And he, and he was, he was a perfect blend because he was a broadcaster. He was a broadcaster, baseball guy playing a broadcaster. John Candy was an actor playing, you know, a comedic role of the, you know, pessimistic broadcaster. Um, He's uncredited in this movie. Like he originally wasn't cast in it. I don't know what circumstance brought him into it. If it was the Daniel Stern 
you know, relationship from Home Alone, or even if there was one from Home Alone, because we know, um, you know, John Candy's role in that movie was kind of like condensed down, and he's only in like you know, mm-hmm. kind of those couple scenes that he they was shot the Poker King. O'Hara. Yeah, he's a Poker King of the Midwest, um, Gus Zelinsky. But uh, so maybe it was some sort of combination of that. But like he just did this, and it doesn't. When I think of my favorite John Candy movies, I immediately jump to. I mean, Home Alone jumps in because it's such an iconic role, but like the great outdoors and just, I mean, some of those movies, even cool runnings, like you think of John Candy. This one doesn't jump to mind as a quote unquote John Candy movie. He's phenomenal. It's a somewhat small part, but it's such an integral part because as you said, there's so many baseball movies at this time, Major League One and Two, Little Big League had Wally Holland played by John Gordon. the forgotten one that I now haven't seen in years, but saw a, a fair amount, not, not a lot. I've definitely seen it less than all the others was angels in the outfield where you had again, an actor playing a broadcaster ranch wilder, but he, it was, you know, the over the top radio voice. So um, it really can sort of not make or break, but it can add so much to it. And John Candy in this movie is, I mean, he tells the narrative and progress because there is so for a baseball movie, there's very little baseball in it, really. I mean, you think about it, like we yeah. were just saying, we don't see the Cubs hit. We don't see more than three pitchers. We don't see, like, we see kind of like little sequences of baseball here and there. So we really depend on John Candy going, all right, three games left in the big league season, and the Cubs are, you know, he he's progressing the narrative of really, you know, the whole storytelling structure. Well, it looked like, they shot for the most part a lot of the baseball in between games of a doubleheader on September nineteenth, nineteen ninety two, between the Cubs and the Cardinals. And the road game against the Dodgers had was to, actually filmed Kaminsky, at right? Kaminsky, yeah. I was gonna say, like the way I was watching that closely yesterday and the way they shot it. Uh, I, I have this ability. I've collected baseball cards forever. I could always look at a picture on like any card and go, "Oh, I know exactly what field," just based off of, like how the crowd looked. I'd be like, "Oh, this is in Detroit. Oh, this is in New York." Watched that yesterday. I was like, "Yeah, there's no way this has got to be at Comiskey because that also had the blue fence and just the way the lighting was." I was like, "Yeah, there's no way this is Chavez Ravine." But all right, uh, we should probably wrap this up. We could keep going, and maybe we will once we maybe stop we recording, just for just for Pearl and I. Uh, we'll be back next week as training camps getting ready to open here soon in the NFL. Like we said, the trade deadline coming up here for Major League Baseball, so we might actually have a few more sports things to talk about, and we will pick another movie for next week don't forget you know summertime a lot of just horrendous flooding here in vermont a lot of damage done but you know we're on the recovery and after just a couple hard weeks get out hit the lake do so on a pontoon boat Visit LaCare's Power Sports. If you're not, you're on the uh, the shores of Maine, hey, you could still come on down 
get yourself all hooked up from LaCare's Power Sports. Or now's the time. If you want to get your sled for winter, you can get what you want, get in, get out. You don't wait. Don't wait till the first snowflake drops to say, ooh, I want to get a new sled. You might not get what you want at that point, but you can get what you want right now. You know what I think you do is, is even if you're in Maine, I, I think you make that drive. Like last fall, I think it was early, early September, I attended a wedding down in Vermont. And I mean, that is a beautiful drive. No matter how you go down there, it is a beautiful drive. So I think even for our listeners in Maine, uh, take the drive on down. It's worth it. Like get, get this for, for the prices there and the service you'll get top notch. It's worth the drive. And guess what? You'll enjoy the drive. Listen to some, some uncommon podcasts. Listen, listen to us. Listen to Absolutely. Listen to uncommon deeds. Be a great time. It's a fantastic time. Great weather. Great. I made that drive so many times while going to college in Bangor, Maine. Just hitting Route 2 all the way to Bangor. It's a great drive. And like you said, it's a solid five and a half hours to listen to you can catch up podcasts, catch up on all the podcasts. Even if you don't want to do that, put in a nice audio book, whatever, whatever you're into and visit LaCare's power sports. Sterling's columns are up on the Facebook page. Uncommon media VT. Check those out more coming. I would assume, especially as training camps draw nearer and the trade deadline for baseball is upon us. Yeah, this week had a piece on, obviously, DeAndre Hopkins uh, signing with the Titans, what it means for the Patriots. Training camp for the Patriots opens next Wednesday. So uh, this is literally the last week where we won't have at least like something happening at Patriots training camp. Uh, but also uh, got some in the can doing something I'm calling the Dirt Dog Diaries, where I rewatch the 2004 uh, Red Sox postseason, starting with game four of the ALCS against the Yankees. Uh, I have now finished and have in the can games four, five, and six, and I've started the watch today on uh, game seven. So uh, we'll have that kind of sprinkled in amongst football season down the stretch too. So even if the Red Sox miss the postseason, we can remember the happier times. All right, guys, check out all the uh, different podcasts on Uncommon Media, Uncommon Deeds. We got our live show from New Hampshire Motor Speedway, hopefully coming out in the next week or so when we get that audio from them. The No Fouls podcast will be back, I believe, next week. Plenty for you to listen to. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we will catch you next week.